This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Be my guest, put your skills to the test, hey, don't you know? And I And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Countryside by Nimbus Cloud. This Cleveland area musician is our feature Ohio music artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, because the title of this episode has me shaking my head. Are you really going to tell us that there are people who think Thomas Edison was a killer? <laughs> I surely am. I, mean, I know he has his detractors. There's a lot of competition and jealousy in the world of invention, but seriously murder that little old white haired guy who went deaf in his youth gave us electricity record players and movies well he wasn't always a little old white haired guy and yes it's a theory that's been around apparently for more than a century the theory really got a boost in the 1980s when a british man named christopher rawlins was viewing a house in leeds england as he was getting the tour the owner mentioned the house once belonged to a French man named Louis Le Prince. That Le Prince was the true inventor of motion pictures, and the reason Le Prince was never recognized as such was because Thomas Edison had taken a contract out on him. So this is like common knowledge in Leeds, England. Well, it was for that guy. Rollins said he didn't immediately buy the story, but curiosity got the better of him. He started a 10-year effort to learn more about the life of Louis Le Prince. Le Prince mysteriously disappeared from Paris in 1890, just as he was on his way to America to reveal his motion picture camera. Rollins turned his findings into a documentary called The Missing Reel. It was published around 1990. Now, for that film, Rollins went looking for Louis Le Prince's descendants, who happened to be in America. He found a bunch of great-grandchildren living in Memphis, Tennessee. And that's where he learned that Le Prince's widow always believed 
Edison had her husband killed to give him time to finish working on his own motion picture camera. And this oral tradition has been passed on through the family for decades. And they are carrying that torch to this day. Oh, yes. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence of it. There's, frankly, not even evidence Le Prince was murdered. But 100%, the family still believes it to be the case. Well, I know Edison had a reputation for being ruthless, and maybe he pulled some shenanigans to make sure he was first on some of those patents. Hey, patent wars between inventors were real and common, especially in the 19th century when the world was taking a huge technological leap forward. I'm sure some of the things said about Edison were probably true. But don't forget, Edison was named the most influential human being in a thousand years by a panel that was put together at Life magazine. And I don't suppose you can reach that pinnacle without having stepped on some toes. Well, there's a difference between stepping on toes and chopping them off. But okay, I'm intrigued. Let's hear this story. First, a quick word about Thomas Edison. Edison, of course, is one of Ohio's favorite sons. He was born in Milan, up in the northwest part of the state. His second wife, Mina Miller, who was with him for most of his life's work, was from Akron in the northeast. His time as an itinerant telegraph worker in Cincinnati, down by Ohio's southwest border, led to his first great invention— an improved telegraph device. And Edison loved coming to Ohio to show off his inventions to friends and family around the state, even after he was settled into his New Jersey Invention Lab as the famous wizard of Menlo Park. We've done an entire episode on Thomas Edison, so I won't repeat his life story here because you can find it on our website. Give it a listen. But let me tell you, about Louis Augustin Le Prince. Le Prince was born in Metz, France, where he grew up the son of an army officer. He spent a great deal of time in the studio of his father's friend, the pioneer of photography, Louis Daguerre. It was from him he received lessons on photography and chemistry and watched him create his famous invention, the daguerreotype. That was the first publicly accessible photographic process. If you see a portrait from the mid to late 1800s, it was probably a daguerreotype. Le Prince went on to study painting in Paris and chemistry at Leipzig University in Germany. Then he moved to Leeds, England in 1866. There, he married Elizabeth Whitley. They went on to have six children together, and they started a school called the Leeds Technical School of Art. They did very well. They were even commissioned to do portraits of Queen Victoria. Le Prince was a tall man, standing six foot three in his bare feet. Contrary to his intimidating height, those who knew him described him as gentle, considerate, and never easy to ruffle. In 1882, Le Prince moved his family across the pond to New York. There, he led a small group of French artists who produced large panoramas, usually of famous battles. They were exhibited in major cities all over. In 
They were called cycloramas, sort of like the IMAX of the 19th century. It was also during this time in the U.S. that he began experimenting with moving photographs. He designed a camera that used 16 lenses. It was the first invention he ever patented. The camera captured motion, but it's not considered a moving picture camera because each lens photographed the subject from a slightly different viewpoint. If he could have shown the image on a projector, and the projector wasn't invented yet, it would have simply shown an image jumping about the screen. Le Prince faced a lot of work to fix that problem. In 1887, Le Prince's father-in-law invited him to go back to Leeds and use the equipment in his factory, a brass foundry, to help perfect his invention in secrecy, and particularly to get him away from apparent spies in New York who were very interested in his work. It was a tough decision for him because it meant splitting his family. He had to leave his wife and children in America, and he took his son Adolf back with him to serve as his assistant. And it was there, in Leeds, the very next year, when Le Prince did something that one day would have people calling him the father of cinematography. He had designed a new single-lens camera, so the image he was capturing would have the same perspective in each frame. He used a strip of Eastman paper negative film. On October the 14th, 1888, he visited his in-laws and coaxed them out into the garden that brisk fall day. There, he captured them with his camera, strolling about the garden, and did another film strip showing his son Adolf playing the accordion. The strips that have survived to this day were only about 20 frames each, lasting no more than two seconds. But no earlier example of photography in motion has ever been found. These brief but historic film clips are called the Round Hay Garden Scenes. A few days later, Le Prince photographed the traffic crossing the Leeds Bridge using that same single-lens camera. A commemorative plaque now marks the spot from which that film was taken. Le Prince had so much work to do, primarily figuring out how to show his film. Having it on a negative strip is one thing, but projecting it so it could be viewed by another, that was something else. He struggled to find a material that would allow him to play his frames back without tearing or burning. And so the months he had expected to be away from his family in New York turned into one year and then two years. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., Thomas Edison was already a household name. He'd transformed daily life in America and around the world with his numerous inventions. He employed a whole warehouse full of scientists and engineers, all collectively working on a slate of new ideas. And they were hurrying to be the first to patent a motion picture camera. Theirs was going to use a strip of celluloid film to capture the moving images. To those in Le Prince's orbit, it seemed as if Le Prince was going to beat them to the punch. He'd gotten his hands on some of that celluloid, 
It sounded like he was on the verge of learning how to play his film back. In late 1889, he wrote his wife and told her to go find a venue for the grand reveal of his revolutionary camera and projector. It would be the world debut of moving pictures. Lizzie found an abandoned mansion in New York on 168th Street. It was a home that had once been used by General George Washington as his headquarters during the Revolutionary War. She worked out a deal with the owner, free rent, in exchange for the renovations they would do. Then she set about making the place over, top to bottom, with plans for her husband to demonstrate his invention in Washington's former council room. But weeks passed, then months. Le Prince was still trying to perfect his system. In the fall of 1890, he started telling people he was ready. First, he needed to make one stop to see his brother, who lived in Dijon, France. They had to settle the estate of their late mother. The prince left England with some friends, a couple called the Wilsons. The Wilsons stepped off in Paris for a short vacation while the prince got off the train in Dijon. He spent three days with his brother Albert, telling him about his new camera, his plans to get it patented, his upcoming trip to America to promote it. When the visit was done, Albert dropped Le Prince off at the Dijon train station for the 2.39 afternoon ride to Paris. There, Le Prince planned to reunite with the Wilsons for the return trip to England, and from there, he would go on to New York. Albert said at the Dijon train station, the brothers laughed and hugged and were in good spirits. But somewhere between the depot and Dijon, and where the Wilsons were waiting in Paris, Le Prince vanished. He was never seen again, nor was his luggage ever found, luggage that would have contained records of his work. The French police, Scotland Yard, and the family searched far and wide for him. For weeks, the family would go to the ports in New York and check every steamer coming in, just in case Le Prince showed up on one. He never did. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A few months after Le Prince's disappearance, Thomas Edison patented his kinetoscope and was hailed as the sole inventor of the motion picture. Several theories have emerged as to what happened to Louis Le Prince that day in 1889. The one held firmly and loyally by the Le Prince family is that he was assassinated by Thomas Edison. In Memphis, Tennessee, the Le Prince family kept the memoirs of their matriarch, Le Prince's widow, 
Lizzie. During her lifetime, Lizzie assembled evidence, affidavits, and documents to prove her husband's place at the dawn of the motion picture industry. Lizzie spent hours dictating to her daughter, who typed everything into an unpublished book. She revealed that in 1885, her husband decided to go to Edison and offer to sell him his idea. But he bumped into a friend on the way who talked him out of it. The man told him Edison was a thief who would read his idea, reject his offer, then steal it for himself anyway. The exchange unsettled Le Prince so much, he decided to continue his own experiments, but do it in absolute secrecy. He became paranoid, believing he was being watched and stalked regularly by people who were trying to learn about his work. In Lizzie's memoir, she included a story from her daughter Marie, who told about going to fetch her father in his workshop. She peered through the door and caught a glimpse of figures moving on the wall. But just for a second, because her father caught her and admonished her and sent her away before she could see any more. Lizzie said the first time her husband applied for a patent for that single-lens camera, he was denied it and told it had already been done. He knew that wasn't true. He guessed that someone powerful had intervened. He went to Washington and fought to change their minds, then returned home to tell his wife something funny was going on. He became very depressed. Lizzie said after her husband disappeared, she read the story about Thomas Edison's invention of the motion picture camera, using the same principles that she knew to be her husband's. That's the first time it occurred to her that Edison may have had her husband killed. The prince had once told her if anything happened to him, she should take all his invention material to their attorney, a man named Seward, whom he trusted, a man who had seen his work in action. So she did just that. She was stunned when the attorney refused to see her, and she became convinced that he was part of the conspiracy. Making things even worse, because her husband was a missing person and there was no proof he'd been killed, New York state law demanded they wait seven years to declare him legally dead. That meant Lizzie would have to wait seven years for her husband's patents and pending patents to pass on to her, seven years before she could attempt any legal action against Edison and explain her belief how he had infringed on her husband's design. Le Prince was officially declared dead in 1897. The very next year, in 1898, the Le Prince family was in a courtroom, but it wasn't their own lawsuit. Edison had sued the American Mutoscope Company, American Mutoscope had been publishing newsreels. Edison said he was the sole inventor of moving pictures, and as such, American Mutoscope was required to pay him royalties. So Mutoscope asked Adolf LaPrince to testify about his father's work. They wanted to prove that Edison was not the first and sole inventor of movies. 
For the Le Prince family, this was a great opportunity to get their father's secret of work in the public record and finally some credit for what he had achieved. Adolf gave up his university studies. He devoted his full time to preparing for the trial. He went to Europe to collect information about his dad's work and even tried investigating his dad's disappearance. He traveled to Leeds and Paris. He used an assumed name throughout this journey because the family was convinced Edison was having him followed. The family exchanged telegraphs using a secret code because they were convinced Edison had spies at Western Union. At that mutoscope trial, Adolf got to show the round hay garden scenes. Edison's lawyers tried to insist there was no proof those films were made prior to Edison's invention, but they were wrong. Adolf could. The scenes included his grandmother walking about the garden, and he could prove with a death certificate that she had died just 10 days after that film had been made. The court ruled in favor of Edison anyway, though the ruling did not stand. In 1902, an appeals court overturned that ruling. As a matter of fact, the appeals court even cited Le Prince as one of three inventors who had either patented or published descriptions of processes that caused photographs to move. So Le Prince did receive some legal recognition in that way. In the end, it didn't matter. Because of Edison's name, power, and money, the motion picture got behind him with the promise of sharing in the profits, and Edison succeeded in controlling the U.S. film industry for many years. As the judge said when he sided with Edison against Mutoscope, he did not invent the lens, nor the camera, nor the sensitized tape-like film, nor instantaneous exposure, nor discover the persistence of the eye, but he appeared to have invented the means for exploiting the illusion. Two years after that trial, in 1901, Adolf Le Prince was found dead. He had a shotgun wound and was found on Fire Island near York, where he'd gone duck hunting. Some thought he may have killed himself. His family believed his death was the result of an accident, perhaps while cleaning his gun. He was just 29 years old. Edison, as an assassin, isn't the only theory about what happened to Le Prince that day in 1889. Another is that he was killed by a random robber. Le Prince would have arrived in Paris long after dark, and Paris was a dangerous place for someone moving about late at night. Still yet another theory is that he was killed by his own brother. Albert was the last person to see him alive, and if Le Prince was gone, Albert would have stood to inherit their mother's entire estate. But the most objective researchers in this case say the most likely scenario is that Le Prince committed suicide. As a matter of fact, the maker of the documentary I mentioned, The Missing Reel, also concluded this. Rollins, the filmmaker, turned up some documents that Lizzie never talked about in her memoirs, papers that showed Le Prince's father-in-law, who invited him to finish his work at his factory in Leeds, 
was virtually bankrupt and could never have been financially supporting his son-in-law's costly experiments. Rollins discovered that in 1888, Le Prince had been served a summons to appear in court to answer to significant debts he had accrued. He also found that in trying to settle his mother's estate, Le Prince was told by his brother only that he would receive something in the future, but he appeared to have left that meeting with no cash and no immediate promise of it. Finally, letters written by Le Prince himself hinted that his work perfecting his camera and projector were not quite as far along as some thought, and that's why he was delayed in returning to New York for his promised public demonstration. Rollins, the filmmaker, concluded Le Prince had probably killed himself to save his family the embarrassment of his failure and his significant debt, and that years later, Adolf may have killed himself, perhaps having learned much of this in his own investigation and feeling that his father's legacy was just too much to bear. Le Prince's story faded into obscurity until 1930. In that year, the city of Leeds installed a memorial plaque recognizing his accomplishment in filming the first examples of cinematography in their town. His daughter Marie traveled from New York to England and gave a speech. She talked about her mother had told her that there were those who wanted to stop her father, that he was watched all the time, that after his disappearance, someone had broken into his workshop and stolen items, and that, quote, he was removed by agents of American inventors. Now, there have been some very modern-day developments in the story I want to tell you about. In 2004, someone investigating Le Prince turned up a photograph of a man who had been fished from the Seine River in September of 1889. It's a very clear picture, and it looks a lot like the missing inventor. But even if it is, there is still no evidence of how he died, whether foul play or suicide. And then there was this strange thing. In the early 2000s, internet stories about the life of the prince started including an account of a University of New York graduate student named Alexis Bedford, who was researching the early days of motion pictures. As the story goes, he went to a New York library and found a dilapidated leather-bound book that turned out to be one of many notebooks in which Edison jotted down his thoughts and ideas. Bedford claimed in that journal, in an entry dated September the 20th, 1890, that Edison wrote in his own hand, Eric called me today from Dijon. It has been done. Prince is no more. This is good news, but I flinched when he told me. Murder is not my thing. I'm an inventor, and my inventions for moving images can now move forward. Bedford said he took the book to the librarian curator, a Charlene Edmonds, who wasn't surprised to find the journal in their collection. And furthermore, that this curator gave him permission to take the journal back to the University of New York and give it to a historian named Robert E. Meyer, 
in order to confirm its authenticity. He said he did that. But it's good to remember that anyone can put anything on the internet. And while many sources have been repeating this story as fact, others have tried without success to confirm it. In 2017, for example, a woman named Arabella Flynn wrote in her blog, Monday Mystery, that she spent a good deal of time looking for evidence of an NYU grad student named Alexis Bedford, a librarian named Charlene Edmonds, and an NYU historian named Robert E. Meyer. She couldn't find any of them. I also couldn't find any evidence of mainstream media picking up this stunning revelation of Edison's journal. Besides, Steve, I'm having trouble imagining Thomas Edison writing, Murder is not my thing. I mean, who talked like that in 1890? So we're not going to believe a word of that journal entry. You know, unless someone can show it to me, I'm thinking that it's complete hogwash. That documentary filmmaker spent a lot of time hearing the family's side and still concluded that Le Prince more likely killed himself. I think that's pretty significant to have an opinion from someone who spent 10 years on the story. And actually, I think there's evidence in those letters that Le Prince wrote shortly before his disappearance to suggest his invention wasn't even close to being ready. I'm not convinced there was anything there for Edison to steal. I mean, you can hate Edison for having power and money and resources to finish that invention, but sometimes that's what it takes to get something complicated done. That doesn't make it less legitimate. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Nimbus Cloud is the working name of one Terry Gibbs, a very talented musician from Cleveland who specializes in indie rock and indie pop. Terry is a one-man show, doing all his own producing, recording, and mixing. We're featuring his song Countryside tonight. I asked him about the inspiration for it, and I got this answer. I don't want to explain what the song is about too much because I feel like it ruins the mysterious nature of the lyrics. But I will say countryside refers to a person rather than a place. So there you go. Pay attention to the lyrics and see if you can find your own countryside in there. You can also find more about Nimbus Cloud on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Well, let's have another listen to Countryside by Nimbus Cloud. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.